Amen. Good morning. How are you? Everybody all right? <laughs> well, if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 2. Uh, we are taking a, a brief break from our series through Romans to consider and think about and, Lord willing, fall deeper in love with the local church. And this past week, I was, I forgot to mention this to you last Sunday, but this past week, I was away in Baltimore, Maryland with a small group of pastors that I've been connected to for the past eight or nine years that has become a real encouragement to me, and yearly we do a pastoral retreat, and this year we met together in Baltimore, about 120 of us, just to encourage one another and to think more deeply about pastoral ministry and about the local church, and um, I always come away from that yearly retreat with these brothers um, emboldened and encouraged, fortified, uh, just sort of seeing clearer about the local church, and I knew that I would be feeling that, and I felt like it would be wise for us to pause after Romans chapter 3 before we get into Romans chapter 4, and take some time to think about what we are doing here today. My burden is, is that as we work through a letter like Romans, it is beautifully theological and doctrinal and full of truth about the Christian life that we don't unwittingly miss the context that all of this truth and doctrine is supposed to land in. So I think of the gospel as a kind of, just go with this image with me, as a kind of tree that, that is this wonderful truth that is to be planted in our lives and is to bear fruit. But this tree, this truth, is planted in a, a pot, a a soil, a, a ground, a place that is called the local church, that is God's means for the life of a, of a, a regular believer. And so I want us to open and read a, a snapshot <clears throat> into the local church from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, some of you I'm sure have heard of him, called the church dearest place on earth. And I want us to think about life in the local church and what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus together in the family of God. So let me read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And then I want us to look at the local church, and I want to draw three truths, three implications out of this passage for us this morning. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word and the Spirit of God that breathes life into people that were dead and makes them alive and gathers them together in the church. We're part of the great, grand, universal church that is part of people from all over the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation that is trusting in Jesus. But Lord, your word also clearly indicates that we should be part of the local church. The expression of the big church for us is the local church. And you have given us such beautiful privileges to live life together and responsibilities I pray that this morning as we consider the local church, that you would stir our affection for the body of Christ, that those who are in this room who are believers in Jesus would fall deeper in love with the people in this room around them, and that those who do not yet know Jesus, as we even consider your bride, the local church, that she would become so lovely and the work of Christ to redeem her would become so clear that any unbelievers in this room would 
would turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Christ who has a people for himself. I pray that you'd do this all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So three implications from this passage that I want us to consider this morning. First, the local church is a people built on the word of God by the spirit of God. The local church is a people built on the word of God by the Spirit of God. Look, look again at our text, Acts 2, verses 42 and 43. Luke writes this about this, this early fellowship of Christians. He says that, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the first thing that we need to consider is what is the apostles' teaching and who are the apostles? Well, the apostles were a clear set of men. They were the 12 disciples that were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. And remember, one of them, Judas, uh, finds, he, he declares himself ultimately to not be a true follower of Jesus and, and uh, betrays Jesus at the end there of the Gospels. And then in the early chapters of Acts, Acts 1, Matthias is added to the 12. These 12 men are then the apostles. And that's a, a Greek word that means Christ's sent ones. These 12 apart from all of the other people that were following Jesus at the time, had a special authority, a special commission by Jesus to be his teachers, to establish the local church. And they had a kind of one-time historical authority that we as believers, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus like them, do not have. They had a, a special authority to be the ones that established the church. And because they were closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry, they were the ones that were to teach Jesus' teaching, which became the New Testament, the 27 books or letters of the New Testament all come through the hands of one of those apostles or through one of their ministry associates. And so the early church, as they were gathering what would become our New Testament, used whether or not these books or letters came through one of the ministry of one of the apostles as the kind of authentication for what should be in the New Testament. And so when Luke here says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that becomes a phrase that means the Bible, the New Testament, as it's standing on top of the message of the Old Testament, which came through a very specific group of people called the prophets. And so Luke is saying here that the early church was devoted to the Word of God, the teaching of the truth that Jesus gave to his disciples to be spoken and taught and ultimately in the first century recorded in what we now have as our Bible. In other words, God formed and builds his church on the right teaching of the Word of God. So what we do here every Sunday, that's why, friends, you maybe have noticed that we gather and we open up our Bibles, we sing songs that are based on biblical truths. That's why there are lots of maybe musically good songs that are popular in Christian circles that are, but are kind of fluffy and not really centered on God's Word that maybe you want us to sing that we don't sing because it's not really rich with God's Word. And then we open up with a reading of God's Word and we then, after worship, read God's Word and then we read more of God's Word and we pray God's Word and then we open up the Bible as we preach messages here and we preach through God's word, not the pastor's proverbial thoughts for the day. We, we are a people that are centered on God's word because God has always formed his people through his word. He did it in Genesis 1. He formed the world. He spoke, his word went forth, and the, world's, the world was formed. And then we see in the New Testament a kind of recreation in Acts 2. God pours out his spirit, his word is preached, and the church is formed. And we are a people that are built on that word, and the primary message of that word is 
the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done through his son Jesus to redeem a people for himself, to make a family for himself that he would give a mission to so that they would be a display to an onlooking world. That's the good news of the gospel. And you may have noticed, in fact, I hope you have noticed, that at some point in virtually every sermon at Crosspoint, we get to the gospel, don't we? You see that, right? Uh, Spurgeon said this, and I know it's been a few months that we've been quoting Spurgeon, not very often here, and some of you are very nervous. So we've already said, Spurgeon says the church is the dearest place in the earth. This is what Spurgeon says about the gospel centrality of the Bible. He says, I've said this before, I'm paraphrasing this quote. He said that just as in every town and hamlet, hamlet in England, every village in England, there is a road that leads to London, so it is with the scriptures. No matter where you are in the Bible, there is a road that leads to the great metropolis of the Bible, which is Christ. And so friends, every time we gather together, we open God's word and ultimately we know that God's word is pointing us to the fact that God is holy and he is good and just and right, but we have all sinned and separated ourselves from this holy God, and so we are in a predicament because to be separated from God who is life means that we are dead. We are completely unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God, but God in his kindness sends Jesus, God the Son, who is part of the eternal Godhead that never began and never will end, and God had this plan from eternity past to send Christ the Son to become a man to live the life that we have been unable to live because we have all disobeyed God in some way, then to lay down his life on the cross, to bear the wrath of God that should have been ours. But because Jesus is a perfect man and eternally holy God, he has enough holiness to satisfy the eternal holiness of the Father. And Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and rises again in victory over it now. And because he is the victor over sin, death, and the grave, he has the keys to life and he can grant them to those that the Father has given him. And he does that by going across people from every tribe and tongue and nation and saying to them, wake up out of your slumber and follow me. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what's happened to many of you. And that's not just the news about how you are to begin the Christian life. It's news that every Christian needs to hear all the time. Listen to what Paul says very quickly in 1 Corinthians 15, which is this wonderful chapter about the resurrection of Christ. He says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel this word gospel literally means good news. It comes from uh, our English, the Greek word evangelion, from which we get the English word evangelist, which happens to be my last name, which is so cool. I just love it. I just love it. I, you know what? I used to be ashamed of my last name. I used to think it was sort of silly before I was a Christian, and I used to be embarrassed about it. But God in his kindness... And that gave me, he actually put a name on me and said, I, I, you, that's what you will do. How stinking awesome is that? For me, anyway, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, he's speaking to Christians, by which you are being saved... If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So not only is the gospel something that saves Christians, it is something that we are 
being saved in. That means that the gospel isn't just for our salvation, it's for our sanctification. So whether you have been a Christian for four days or 40 years, you need the gospel. Because how do we fight sin that we have been redeemed from? How do we fight the indwelling sin that still remains in us and will remain in us until that day when we see Jesus face to face through remembering the gospel? That, oh, no, this is what God has done with my sin. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west. He's nailed it to the cross and he has disarmed every contrary voice that speaks against me. Friends, Christians need the gospel and the church is built on the gospel and the word of God. Friends, if we ever stop preaching the gospel or if we do a sermon series on seven you know, steps on how to have a you know, better anger management or whatever, friends, and we start cherry-picking from the Bible and just kind of, you know, starting with a verse and adding a bunch of thoughts to it, you should not come to this church anymore. Well, hopefully first you would like rebuke us and warn us. And if we do not heed that rebuke, then you should go to another church because we are not gathering here to get together for a self-help seminar. We are coming here together to humble ourselves under the word of God, which comes from God for the good of his people to create them. And he does this with the spirit of God. Some of you are like, man, I love the word, Brad, let's get a little spirit in there. Friends, the word and the spirit are not at odds with one another. It's the spirit of God that wrote the word of God. And the Spirit of God loves to attend to the right preaching of God's Word. This is what it says here, right after that in verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And let me pause there and just give you a little bit of a kind of a a doctrinal aside. And it is this this controversy that has existed in the church for years about, about... the place of spiritual gifts and miracles and wonders in the life of the church today. And we're not going to get into that debate. We've got into that before, and we've done Wednesday night teachings on that. Uh, Most people in the history of the church have seen these signs and wonders that came through the hands of the apostles, which were clearly evident in the New Testament church, as having a uh, a particular mission in the life of the early church to authenticate or validate the ministry of the apostles. So you would see the apostles like Peter and Paul and others, James and John, many wonders and miracles were coming through their hands. In fact, Peter, somebody was raised from the dead. Uh, incredible things. Paul's handkerchief is healing people. And people are wondering, is that normative in the life of the church today or should it be? I think the answer to that question is, I don't think generally. Now that does not mean that God doesn't still do miracles and wonders and that we shouldn't pray for God to do great things. Of course we should, but I do think that in the New Testament we see a cluster of miraculous things around the ministry of the apostles to validate to an onlooking world that they were sent by Jesus. But friends, here's the thing about signs and wonders. As much as we want God to move in miraculous ways, they are not ultimately what will change the world. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, has died, rose again, appeared to his followers for over 40 days, is about to ascend to heaven, and it says in Matthew 28 verse 17, and some of them doubted. He has performed the greatest miracle in the history of the universe. He rose from the dead. He's fed thousands of people. He's walked on water. And there are still some people that are like, "Ah." I don't know. The point being, friends, is that Salvation never comes by the building up of a rational argument of empirical evidence that tilts the scale to say, aha, if he does that, okay, I know. Friends, we are dead. Dead hearts won't believe if, no matter what happens, what has to happen to a dead heart before it can respond to anything is that God in his sovereign grace, through the preaching of the gospel, makes that dead heart alive so it can believe. 
And he does that through the Spirit of God working. And so friends, yes, let's pray for God to move. Let's pray for miracles to happen. Let's pray for cancer to be healed. Let's pray for all those things. But friends, I contend that the New Testament church, in the New Testament church, the greatest miracle of all is dead hearts from every tribe and tongue and nation coming alive by the Spirit of God as he attends the right preaching of God's Word. Listen to what Ray Ortland, this pastor in Nashville who I really respect, says he wrote a book called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. I've got two of them up here. Um, if the first two people that want that book that come to me at the end of service can get it. Um, be kind to each other. Don't whack each other with an elbow if you really want that book. If we run out, I'll get you another one. This is what he says about the beautiful thing that the Spirit of God does with the Word of God. He says, gospel doctrine, or the Word of God, creates gospel cultures called churches where... <laughs> Wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone, but it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel-defined church is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself. It is a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so that they can put their, Christ, their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance, friends, because there's coming a day when there will be no more opportunity and all of humanity, friends, all of humanity will stand before God and the trivial the compartments that we put ourselves in, black and white and brown and, and cultures and all these types of things, that they, they will mean nothing, and there will only be two types of people, those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And those who are in Christ will go to be with him forever. And those who are outside of Christ, the Bible says that they will be separated from him, and they will face eternal torment in a place where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And that is the only reality for every human soul in this room. How urgent should then the right preaching of God's word be for us. The Spirit of God delights in attending to the word of God. But also, friends, one final thing before we move on to the second truth is that, is that as beautiful as the local church is, the local church is also an absolute mess. And this is, I think, God's design. Because God will bring broken and sinful and banged up people to the very place, in fact, the only place where they can get what they need to change, which is the gospel. A healthy church is an absolutely messy church full of complicated situations and hurting people. So to that end, we should not be shocked at the disaster that is the lives of many people in this church because all of our lives, to some degree, have been, are in the process of being, or eventually will be, to some degree, a disaster. Listen to what Richard Sibbs, a Puritan back in the 1600s, said in his little book called The Bruised Reed. And he writes a whole book on one verse about how Christ will not crush a bruised reed, in other words, hurting people. And he says that the church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all, all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. I mean, if you just look around you right now, just look to the person next to you and you will see something so beautiful and yet something so profoundly hurting all at the same time. That is the paradox of the people of God, the local church in, on this earth. The church is a people built on the word of God by the spirit of God. Secondly, the church is a people accountable to help one another follow Jesus. A people accountable, and this is where I want to push in and maybe push against some of the cultural um, norms that have existed in church culture in our setting. The church is a group of people who are accountable to help one another follow Jesus. Look again at verses 44 through 46 of Acts 2. Luke says that this church, all who believed were together 
and had all things in common. And remember that when Peter had preached the day of Pentecost, there were people from all, all over the world at the time, probably majority Jewish at this point, but certainly people from different cultures. And all who believed were together and all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So a couple things as we, as we look at this idea that the local church is a people accountable to help one another follow Jesus. First, um, over the years, people have, have advocated that we should be a little bit more communal, and, and people have even like used this text as a kind of, of a, as a, to advocate a sort of communistic lifestyle. I, I don't think that this text is advocating a sort of Christian spiritual communism when it says there that they sold all of their possessions. I think that the Bible will speak descriptively at times, not prescriptively. And notice that they didn't put all of their possessions in the middle there because they then eventually went to each other's homes in verse 46. I think what this passage is meant to give us this picture is the, the generosity, the other focus, the other, the outward focus of life in the local church where these people were so captivated by the message of the gospel that they believed and heard that the church was built on that they pushed all of their chips into being part of this new family that God had made through the work of his son. And then we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see this picture that the New Testament paints of the local church. Just a, a few things. We see that this church, as we've said before, is centered on the gospel and the right teaching of God's word. So what makes us a church, friends, is not that we have a building or that we even have organized services. Biblically, throughout the ages, the churches, the great reformers in the 1500s, defined a local church by the right teaching of God's word and by the faithful practice of the ordinances. What are the ordinances? The baptism, which we celebrated last week, and the Lord's Supper. And those become kind of, they kind of become signs to an onlooking world. They mark off who the local church is to an onlooking world. And so baptism, which we saw three sisters being baptized last week, becomes a picture to an onlooking world, a declaration to an onlooking world of who is part of Christ's family that he has died for, the church. Contrast that with how we perceive baptism in much of American church circles. It's merely a personal spiritual uh, you know, statement that you're making, that you might even do privately. But friends, that's not what baptism is in the New Testament. It's a, it's a declaration, it's a proclamation to an onlooking world that this person is now Christ's and part of his family called the church. Think of baptism as a kind of passport. Like, I'm an American because I was born in America. Barely. But I was born, like, like one mile north of the fence. But I was, I'm an American because, by birth, but I have a passport that is a declaration to an onlooking world and to any other nations that I travel to that, that this person is a citizen of this country. Well, likewise, we are not saved by baptism. Clearly not. We see the thief on the cross repent right before his death, and Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And if we were to add baptism as a necessary condition for salvation, it would completely undermine the gospel where Jesus says uh, many times that I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It would undermine what Paul says in, Acts, in Ephesians chapter 2, how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, and no, baptism does not save us, but it is a declaration to an onlooking world, not of a mere personal spiritual experience, but it helps to define to an onlooking world who the church is because, as we'll see in a moment, God designs for his church to live in such a way that the way we do life together as God's new family is meant to be on mission to have a display to an onlooking world. So we're preaching something when we baptize. We're saying I'm part of these people and we're linking arms together because we're on a mission greater than my own personal spiritual growth. We're on a mission to display Christ how we live together. 
That's what baptism is. And then he has given us the other ordinance or command that we are to, as often as we eat it, come together to have a family meal. And we do it the first Sunday of every month. And we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. And again, in much of American church culture, we have whittled down the taking of the Lord's Supper to be a mere personal spiritual experience and certainly it is that but friends it has such broader implications in the life of a Christian it's a family meal that we are to take together as a church together because we are reminding one another that we are the Lord's and we are in common saying to one another that I'm with you and I'm with you and we're together believing the same Jesus and we're coming to the same table for a family meal to catch up and encourage one another in the Lord. And so do you see these two pictures, these two signs that God has given, baptism and the Lord's Supper? To be a picture of what? The gospel that brings life to a group of people who are together as a local church. And then he gives this local church leaders. He gives them elders, overseers, pastors. Those three words really mean the same thing in the New Testament. And we won't take the time to read it, but in 1 Timothy 3, we read the description of who elders, pastors, overseers. Again, those three words mean really the same thing who they are and what they do. They are not supermen. They are not better than anybody else. They're just men who aspire to the office of elder and they have a, a good testimony of what it means to follow Jesus and they have the ability to teach God's word. And friends, the church is led by elders and elders are not men who have secular business skills that bring some secular business wisdom to bear on the life of the local church. Elders are men who are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus, who can handle God's word, and I don't think that necessarily means that they need to be public preachers, but they can handle God's word in the sense that they can lead Christians to follow Jesus better as they are able to piece together the Bible. Elders are men who are called by God, who are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus, who can lead God's people by delivering God's word. Whether they are a janitor or the president of the bank. But churches get into all sorts of trouble when they pick their leaders to be men who have some sort of business skill. Or this guy's a, you know, he's in the chamber of commerce. This guy's a, you know, he has this skill, so let's get him. No, friends, what qualifies the leaders of the church is that they have a good testimony. They're a good example of what it means to follow Jesus, and they can deliver God's word to God's people. Those are who elders. And let me just pause here and say that we have seven elders now at our church. A few of them are on staff employed by the church, and the majority of them are not employed by the church. We think that's a good mix. In fact, we think that the church should be primarily led by people who are not vocationally employed by the church, and that's the case here. But let me just pause and say that we need more elders. This past week, as I was fellowshipping with these brothers, we actually, as Crosspoint, is, is one of the larger churches in this little network of churches that we're part of and where these guys pastor. But many of them had many more elders than we do. And we have a membership that's approaching 600 people and certainly more than that that would attend on a Sunday with probably 200 children, lots of issues, lots of people that need care. And God has given elders to be under shepherds to help shepherd the flock, to counsel them in God's word. And we need more. And you need to realize that I am just one of the elders. I don't have any more wisdom than these other brothers do. Clearly, God has raised me up to plant the church and to be the leader of the elders. But the church should be well served by a, a, a group of elders. And, and frankly, there are men in this church who I think would be great elders who need to consider whether or not God is calling you to be an elder. We need more elders to help shepherd this church. And then finally, just thinking about this, people accountable to one another, we see this congregation that is committed to one anothering each other. We're committed to caring for one another. We're committed to prioritizing relationships with one another for the sake 
of the display of the gospel to the onlooking nation. So let me push against something that I think is just ingrained in all of us. We as Americans often come, even unwittingly on a subconscious level, as consumers, and I don't think this is pervasive here, but this is just, I think, scriptural truth that as a pastor I need to shepherd. So don't, don't perceive this as a scold against Crosspoint in any way. I think this is just truth that we need to be reminded of. But unwittingly, in our culture, we are prone to come to church life as a kind of commodity to be consumed rather than a family to be committed to. And what that ends up doing is we have people, oftentimes in churches, that are in a sense mature Christians who have a very good understanding of God's word, but who, because they haven't been taught well about what it means to be a Christian in a local church and what the purpose of the church is, is that they really just kind of attend the church that in the city that they're part of, they perceive to have the best teaching and, you know, the worship that's kind of suitable to them. And so they just want to kind of go and unwittingly consume. And now they may be leading other groups of Christians, friends, networks of friends in other churches, and that's a wonderful thing to do. But the problem, the underlying weakness of kind of going to a church but having most of your deep connections outside of that church with other Christians is, is you kind of get to pick your spiritual friends according to those that you're most compatible with. But God has designed us to be together in this room and people from all walks of life. He's actually designed church to be a little messy and inconvenient and awkward so that it forces us to communicate something more compelling to an onlooking world. And that compelling thing is not, hey, I understand the gospel, and outside of the church I'm hanging around and kind of committing most of my Christian resources and wisdom to people that are like me. No, it forces us to actually, I think, if we look at the Bible theologically, it says that we have a special responsibility towards one another that are part of the same local church, and we may not be like each other in a cultural sense. But as we do the hard work of pressing into each other's lives, and as it slows us down, and as it is kind of awkward and messy, that actually commends something to an onlooking world, doesn't it? That these people aren't just the people from here and there that kind of group together, but they're people that never otherwise would have been together other than it were not for Jesus. And friends, come on, let's just admit it. We, we gravitate towards comfort. And the Bible actually pushes us against that. And it gravitates us, it pushes us towards inconvenience and awkwardness. So that the most compelling thing that knits us together would be Christ and his gospel. So I think the implications of that is that there are people in this room who have a wealth, a lifetime of Christian wisdom. And oh, dear brother or sister, if you are not prioritizing relationships with people in this local church, I would just encourage you as a sweet exhortation from your pastor to redirect your commitments. Not to the exclusion of friends that aren't part of this church, but to prioritize because God has a special design for God's people to do this. And we hope that this is going on in all the other sister congregations in our city that we love so much. This isn't because we think Crosspoint's doing anything better than anybody else, but we think Christ's community should do this very same thing. And we think Calvary Baptist should do this very same thing. And when we see one another in the city and we're friends and we're neighbors, oh, we love one another, but I am especially committed to Stephen Clayton and Drew Nelson. I'm especially committed to Bob Mims. I'm especially committed to Julie Palmer because we have, we have subordinated ourselves towards one another in a way that yokes me to them like it does not to other believers. So I, I think an implication of this is if you're a believing Christian, I think, I think you should pursue membership in a local church. Now some of you are like, ah. I, I knew what was behind this all. <laughs> he just wants more. Look here. I confess that 12 years ago, when we planted Crosspoint, there was little idols in my heart that I just wanted a lot of people to come. I do, man, I, can, I confess that. 
I just wanted to be known as the guy. There was, I mean, not all the time. I wasn't like some slave to that ridiculous idol. But I, little recesses of my heart that just, you know, wanted people to come so I could have a church that was so many people. But God in his kindness has crushed that idol. I want as many people as that we can faithfully shepherd with more elders in good theology and a good understanding of the church for the display of God to come. But other than that, I, I, just, I just want to be faithful. The, the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 something very sobering to me and other leaders of the church. It says this, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, it says that someday I and the other elders of this church will have to stand before God someday and give an account of how we led you. And every time I read that verse, I think, <laughs> I think about People in this church who I'm responsible for, who I maybe haven't led well, or I'm failing in some way, or I need to follow up, there's always a, a running list of 10 or 15 names in the back of my mind that I just think, oh, I need, I need to serve that person. I need to, I need to care for them. I need, to, I need to check in on them because I know that someday I'm going to stand before God. And I think implicit in that is if there's this relationship between leaders and the people that they are accountable to, I think it's implicit in that, implied in that, is this notion of a committed relationship with one another where we know each other. And I, I think we call it church membership in our culture, but I think that is clear. Who are we really responsible for? Anybody that just comes on any Sunday? No, those who have committed themselves. And the process that we have here at this church is church membership classes where we explain what it means to be a Christian, what, are, what we believe, and we ask you to meet with a pastor or elder to explain what it means to be a Christian, tell us how be, you became a Christian, because we would not want you to join this church unless you were certain that you were trusting in Christ. We would not want to give you false assurance that you're okay with Jesus just because you're attending the church. So back to that point about wondering whether or not we just want to grow. Friends, no, no. Listen to this, this pastor, John Brown. He was a Scottish pastor a couple centuries ago, and he was a pastor and teacher and trainer of young men in the ministry, and he received a letter from a young man who he had sent away to pastor a church out in the Scottish countryside, and it was a small church, and this pastor, this young pastor, was bemoaning how small his congregation was. And this is what this old wise pastor writes to him. He says, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small, in comparison with those of your brethren around you, but assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you've had enough. <laughs> I, think, I think about that. I think about that a lot. And I think that part of being a local church is that we should all think about that a lot. And that we should all have a kind of mutual responsibility for one another. That the wisdom is not stacked in just a few, but the grace and the goodness and the counsel and the truth. The local church should be a kind of echo chamber a web of committed relationships of people who for no other reason would not be together were it not for the surpassing worth of Jesus that do the hard work of recognizing how broken life is. They're not shocked at the sin in one another's life. They roll up their sleeves and they, they preach the gospel to one another and they care for one another and they take initiative and one generation commends the works of God to another and all of us have this sense that God has put us together for something greater than to hear good music and decent preaching but he has put us together for the sake of helping one another follow Jesus 
And to those that visit Sunday after Sunday, we're so glad to see you. And we, because we care for you, just, just want to help you follow Jesus. And part of that may be saying, hey, man, you should be part of this church. Or if this church isn't for you, because I know that guy can be tough to take sometimes, go to another church that preaches the gospel, right? Some of you right now, as a kind of one application of this before we end this, we're going to land this plane. Some of you right now should just commit to coming to church a little early and having your head on a swivel and seeing whom you can love and leaving a little late. And some of you sit in the same spot every Sunday and you should commit to being like the spiritual shepherd of your little section. And you should make it your mission to learn the names of all the people that sit around you and just have simple conversations and consider how you might do them good. How can I pray for you, person that's been sitting in the row by me for the last two years? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Are you, you, have you been coming across? Oh yeah, five years, me too, five years. We've been sitting across from each other and didn't even know. What's your name? Joe, I'm Bob. How can I pray for you? And then shoot them an email, get a member directory, get their contact information, and shoot them a text, man. Do you know the power that God can bring in the life of a believer who is struggling when they know that a brother or sister is thinking of them in a week on a terrible Tuesday? Friends, that, that can mean the difference between victory or defeat in a spiritual struggle. And God has given us the great privilege to prioritize those types of simple, organic things. And God does beautiful things with that, friends. He does beautiful things. And then finally, before we come to the Lord's table, very quickly, this third point, all of this, people built on God's word in relationships to help one another follow Jesus, he does all of us to put these people on display to an onlooking world. You've probably heard this dichotomy, which I think is false, where people will say, oh, this church is really good at discipleship, but it's not very good at evangelism. Or some people will say, well, this church is really good at outreach and evangelism, but they're not really good at maturing and edifying believers in discipleship. I actually think that's a false dichotomy. I actually don't think that that should even exist because if you're truly helping one another follow Jesus, that's discipleship, part of that is going to be a kind of evangelistic display to an onlooking world. And if you're truly good at reaching the lost, you're going to be bringing them into biblical health, into a growing relationship with Jesus. And here's this paradigm that I want to share with you. Is I think that our life together the way we actually do life together as local Christians in the same church should be a kind of aroma to an onlooking world that God uses to draw those whom he's saving to himself. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, Christians in the local church, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, as the local church is faithful to the Bible and faithful to loving one another in a way that becomes a display to the onlooking community, some people will be drawn to it and some people will hate it. That's not our business. That's God's. He's going to do what he will do with the right preaching and living out of his gospel. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity is commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. We are, we are a kind of aroma. Our life together, the way we do church, actually is meant to be a kind of evangelism. I end with this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, where he talked about the church is the dearest place on earth. Listen to what he says. And after I read this, we're going to come together to the Lord's table and receive communion. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. 
for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first, been, first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? It is right for anyone, if, if it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony of God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is not ex- no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. And let me say that important caveat. This is meant for Christians. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you should not join the church. In fact, we wouldn't let you join this church if you're not a believer in Jesus because the church is God's family. We would love you and care for you and serve you and hopefully lead you to trust in Jesus. But the church is for God's people. Nor need your own faults keep you back for the church is not an institution for perfect people but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Amen. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. And what do families do? They get together and eat. They eat God's word and they commemorate and remember the cross by taking the meal that we're about to take. I think to come take this meal, you should be a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you you should not come to this table that we're about to feast at. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you're not connected, committed to, a member of a local church, I think you should prioritize that in the near future in your life. I think you should keep your ears peeled for the next time we do a membership class. If this isn't the place for you, I, I and the other pastors and elders can point you to several other gospel preaching churches that do wonderful ministry in our city. But we're coming now to this table where we are remembering what Jesus, our big brother, has done for us. That he died for our sins that his body was broken, that's what the bread represents, that his blood was spilled, that's what the cup represents, to bear the wrath of our Father so that we might be adopted into his family, put into this thing called the church, the family of God, and put on mission for the display of his glory to an onlooking world so that through our lives together, he might add more people to his family and invite them to the table so they too might eat and be satisfied. Ushers, if you'd come and be prepared to service, let me pray, and we'll receive together. Father, thank you for the church, the dearest place on earth. May we fall more in love with it. May the beautiful truth of the gospel in Romans land in our hearts and root us into these type of committed, inconvenient, beautiful, Christ-displaying relationships in the local church. Lord, this local church is so imperfect, but that is by your design that we together might glorify you as we are being saved by your gospel living out our sanctification to an onlooking world, showing them that there's something better than this broken world. Do that in us, I pray. And may we fall deeper in love with Jesus. May we examine our lives as Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians before we take this meal. And may we feel afresh our need for mercy as we come to the table to feast on Christ and what he alone can supply. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as the team comes to lead us, if you would all stand. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come when you are ready to the usher that is nearest you to take the bread and the cup. Hold on to the elements, and then Reynolds will serve us, will lead us to partake together as a family. When you are ready, you can come to the table.